Yo, Tyson Yakaporta here from the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab uh, out of the Nikeri Institute at Deakin University. Uh, looking at um, some very, I don't know, strange, seems like a strange idea. So we're looking at today, we're looking at Indigenous finance, which seems a bit like, you know, um, you know, underwater photography for an eagle or something like that. Um, in a lot of ways, it feels like it uh, just goes the wrong way against everything that it is to be indigenous, uh, to be engaging in finance. But what if we looked at that a slightly different way? What if in the indigenous tradition, in indigenous tradition of Turtle Island, uh, in you know the Americas, what if uh, there was an equivalent role uh, traditionally that you could take up? If if you were in finance, um, that what you really were under Indigenous law was an intermediary, an intermediary who was carrying seven sacred teachings and operating uh, from very intensive and strict indigenous protocols uh, in order to manage the relationships, trust and transactions between people. Is it possible that such a traditional approach um, to finance and investment, is it possible that that could begin uh, to solve the problem of trust and the sphere of trust? Because as you'll see in this amazing yarn, uh, this brief but amazing yarn coming up now, we, uh, we arrive at a place where, where risk is not the thing, but uh, trust, trust is the thing. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> uh, I'm still having having trouble getting my head around the entire thing because it's um it kind of blew my mind and we ended in a place that i'm still not sure if it was negative or positive but let's uh jump in and let's start exploring raven capital all right so jacqueline Jacqueline Jennings from Raven Capital. We're just we're just meeting each other for the first time, and um, though I feel like I know you because I've listened to hours and hours of your voice. Ah, oh my goodness! Someone told me I had a good voice the other day on on for recording, and but I've got that thing you know where you listen to your voice back and it just sounds like oh, sounds awful. I mean, it just sounds awful to me. Apparently, no, it sounds okay to other people. I, I suggested, I, I mentioned that our whole team read your book, but I think all of them chose to listen to it. Oh, man. And see, you're giving people financial advice. This is terrifying. I'm not giving anyone financial advice. <laughs> well, this is just where I'm completely intrigued. So, I'm, I'm, of course, uh, we'll have to uh, do our proper introductions and where we are and who we are and all that kind of thing. But um, I'm completely intrigued about the idea of indigenous capital, uh, indigenous finance, uh, you know, I, and, and indigenous, you know, investment. Um, 
kind of like you know <laughs> it's like i don't know like uh, uh anyway it's blowing my mind so um i'd love to see what that looks like um so where are you and and who yeah. and why so um so i'm jacqueline jennings i'm of mixed heritage i'm anishinaabe Kwai, swampy cree uh, Métis and of mixed European settler descent by way of New Zealand, actually, yeah. on the other side. Um, and I grew up um, outside of our traditional territory. My Cree family was forcibly displaced from their lands um, during, um, a, you know, an event of colonization, a flooding of our territory. And most of my family um, went on the move and um, resettled in what is now known as um, Northern Alberta in Canada. And then my grandparents continued the move west to the Pacific. And I was born and raised in the stolen and unceded territory of the Squamish nation mm. outside of what is currently known as Vancouver. And right. I live today in their territory um, just across the water, but still in Squamish Nation territory on this, what is called the Sunshine Coast, which I know there's a Sunshine Coast in Australia and there's a Sunshine Coast in Canada. And, um, and I am a, a mother um, of a six-year-old wildling and uh, a daughter and a sister and a matriarch in training. And um, I'm also, um, a uh, second generation residential school survivor. Mm. And um, I am also uh, a, an adult who was a child in our foster care system. And I am also 24 years sober um, in a family where um, drugs and alcohol have killed the majority of folks um, mm. who tried to reach the age of about 50. So I'm, I'm tracking well on all, all fronts and I'm very, very grateful to the relatives and ancestors in the Squamish nation who have cared for this land that has cared for them since time began. That's, that's deadly. We just, um, uh, we don't have the same kind of metrics for things <laughs> here. Um, and like, I think particularly with blood quantum and the idea of, you know, um, mix this and that is, um, is tricky in Australia because of the way that was deployed as a as a biological weapon. Uh, like they figured that, you know, because when they looked, you know, back in the old days and what they saw was blackness, they figured that was the defining characteristic. And if they could just get rid of that, then we'd all be gone. And uh, it didn't really work out that way. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, um, I don't know. I, I'm aware though on Turtle Island that there's there's certain places where um where speaking about that and asserting that is is a really good way of actually uh, you know taking control of your destiny and uh, self determination as a community and and all that sort of thing. It's it's different over here. <laughs> so we um you know so we really define ourselves quite differently because I mean you know most of our population is if we lived anywhere else would be of mixed descent. Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, uh, there's a, uh, I tell you, the harshest metrics I ever saw was in Brazil. Like, what, you know, like I, I was talking to this one guy and he's, and 
And I said, oh, so you're indigenous. And he's like, no, no, I'm not indigenous. And I'm like, oh, well, I, thought, I thought you were indigenous. Sorry, man. And he's just like, no, my, my grandmother, she was indigenous. Um, but they put her in a cage and they wrapped her and uh, they starved her and beat her until she wasn't indigenous anymore. And uh, so I'm not indigenous. And I'm like, all right, well, that's a whole other... Uh, <laughs> It's just, yeah. it's so weird globally. See, and yeah, here's but... the thing, when I start to think about finance, when I start to think about economic systems and just the, the ontologies, uh, just the ways of being and the limits to being that are placed over us and the metrics well, that are placed over us all around the globe. Um, yeah. And the pain it's weird. The, you know, we, we, I'm so conscious of and, and have been taught to be so conscious of not contributing to this idea of pan-indigeneity, like what's true for one of us is true for all of us. This couldn't be more, yeah. um, you know, further from the truth. And, and I want to just be really clear that I don't believe and I don't subscribe to blood quantum whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm sorry if I gave the impression that I was... Um, no, that's okay. Uh, it was a negative thing it was just like oh it's so it's so different when you meet people from other places because i mean i'm on uh bunurong country here and that's um you know so the descendants here are all coming from uh, uh just uh, most people were killed here and there was there was just a handful of women who were abducted and removed and uh, have and their descendants have made their way back kind of thing you know, it's it's that kind of thing <laughs> here is very near like complete genocide in a lot of places, particularly in the south. And um, yeah, a lot of a lot of just horrendous disruptions. So, you know, things are kind of all over the place. I, I find that here, you know, we have a lot of stories, especially on the coast, because we had a uh, uh, viral or what do you call it? Um, bio weapon genocide where smallpox came through there was actually two rounds yeah. of smallpox on the west coast one that was just at contact bare like barely a lot of europeans hadn't been into communities and as i've heard elders describe it it came on the wind or it came through an, a, a visitor that wasn't european mm. and in a lot of situations entire villages entire nations were almost or entirely wiped out and so I think there, there's probably some shared experience there. Mm. And, and that is very, very tender because as you mentioned, people are, you know, have come back and they have repopulated and, and rehabituated their territories. And, you know, I have, I have some people that I love that are not willing to talk about their white ancestors. It's too yeah. painful. Oh I, man, I've got uh, I got people I love who are like you know, uh, still talking about full blood half caste, octroon quadroon. You know, heaps of people I love doing that. I got I got people I love who refuse to get in an elevator with 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 an Asian person, you know, and have done for the last fifty years or sixty or seventy years. You know, I still love them. Yeah. I I slap them around the head a little bit when I feel like I can get away with it, but you know. You just, you can only do what you can do. Um, yeah, time is a funny thing. Uh, so my mob's, um, so Yunker Port is part of the Upledge clan of Western Cape York. And uh, part of our, our homeland, there is a little place called Cape Kiwia. It's just a jutting bit of thing. And Kiwia is Dutch for turn back. 
Um, you know, so my clan was the one who speared them like 500 years ago, the Dutch. Uh, and so they they went back and they'd lost everything because we speared most of them. <laughs> and and so they went back and they lost the, you know, all their investment. All the people who invested in that voyage, they just lost it all. So they had to figure out a way to, um, you know, outsource the risk uh, to other people or like, you know, get the heat off them. And so they invented the world's first corporation, et cetera, et cetera. So basically the Dutch invented finance. Um, they also invented art speculation. So I blame them completely for NFTs at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just historically. Oh, as an Indigenous person, you got a deep view of time. So it means you can blame people going way back a lot, really long time, keep that feud going. So, uh, <laughs> although I do have some Frisian friends from the Netherlands now, that's the Indigenous people from there. They still got them there. They're still looking after their wetlands, which is really cool. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so I really wanted to look at this finance. And it is interesting because we're talking, as we're talking about, uh, all the massive disruptions, you know, and in some places, you know, uh, people have been less disturbed. And so there's more continuity in other places, there's less. Uh, that means there's a lot of what we call gammon. Um, oh, like, I don't know, uh, pretendy kind of stuff going, not pretendy, but just people that haven't really thought it through, you know? So there are a lot of people around who are doing like, oh, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm of indigenous descent and uh i'm doing surfing so i'm doing indigenous surfing and like you know and that and you see that and that's the title of the book and you get all excited you're like oh cool indigenous <laughs> surfing we're going to find out so obviously they've gone and hung out with some native hawaiians and they've been there and they've learned the thing and and they're obviously you know uh, looking at seasonal patterns of waves and, and and all kinds of things there and it's just like no no it's just uh just indigenous. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of indigenous descent, uh, descent and I'm surfing. All right. Yeah, I'm doing indigenous bungee jumping. I'm doing indigenous mathematics. Uh, I'm doing indigenous finance. And so that's why I really want to talk to you. Although I've looked through everything and I'm quite satisfied. Like I started looking at it. Um, I, I still want to like uh, really rake you over the coals and ask you, are you like, uh, <laughs> are you indigenizing finance or? Are you financializing indigeneity mm. here? And what's the difference? And what is it that you're doing special uh, that, that's quite amazingly different? Uh, what is, is it fireweed? Yeah. And what, and, and the, I, I'm just really interested in the seven, uh, the seven laws and things that you're, you're working with. And, you know, whether this is just like a, a thing on the mission statement like a dream catcher on the wall or is it full on is it real are you actually doing something new with finance that could actually change things for the world yeah those are questions that um i asked myself um and i i think it's important to to just sort of position myself in this work a little bit so um i'll just yeah i'll just do that yeah um, well that the hour is yours i've just like <laughs> I don't like doing this thing with lots of little questions. It's like, hey, big question. And then you can just go. With well, it. I mean, and I and I appreciate it. And I think, you know, I reached out to you and was like, my my only wasn't even a question was just a statement as like, I want to know you. Um, let's do that. So, yeah, let's do that. So yeah. um, 
so because I, because I, because of all of the reasons that all of us are disconnected from our culture in multitude of ways, and also because of all of the reasons that nothing can disconnect me from some aspects of my culture, like the love that my ancestors had for me and the blood memory that I carry in my body um, that was particularly awakened when I became a mother. Um, But I spent a lot of my early uh, childhood because we were so, so displaced. So the, the distance from where I grew up and where my territory, my ancestors lived, let's say three or four generations ago is the same distance between Morocco and Ireland. All of it's within Canada, but just for context, like that's how far away it is. And so um, I've, I've had really generous um, and loving opportunities to experience the culture of the Squamish and Seashell nations where I live, but it's very, very different. And so, um, and I, so I ended up growing up in a bit of an urban indigenous diaspora. Mm. You know, our, mm. our, our best friends down the street were Northern Carrier from BC and we had Haida friends from up near Alaska and, um, you know, we kind of, everybody likes salmon. So that's the yep. good, like common thing. Oh, that's, but that's, that's the reality now. That's how most of the communities are. That's not yeah. what you see on TV, eh? but that's yeah. how most people are living is like all different mobs all sort of mixed in together and um, yeah. trying it's, to figure that out. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think there's, there, there's a whole conversation about, you know, privilege of growing up in a city versus privilege of growing up on the reserve in your territory. And I don't really want to get into that. But yeah, um, as a result, what I I grew up, I didn't have a lot of, um, or any really indigenous career role models. Mm -hmm. So um, in our community, if you, and I'm going to use air quotes, if you made it, Um, you went back to work for your First Nation or you went to work maybe for the federal government. Those were sort of career paths. Yeah, God. And so... um, It's funny though, as far as I can see, like if you're living a metro metro kind of life or a life Mm -hmm. on the res, it's just the main difference is that um, uh, one of those groups uh, can tell and understand res dogs jokes. <laughs> I think you've cracked the code. That's what it is. <laughs> that's the main thing. That's that's the main. That's what, I, that's what I hear. Res dog jokes are our main differentiator. Yeah, I don't get res dog jokes. Like, <laughs> I just don't get it. Anyway, uh, I'm learning late in life. My okay, my res dog humor uh, capacity is growing. Um, oh, yeah. Anyways, so I built a career. Um, I, and I went out into the world and, and worked and, and felt that my indigeneity was a real liability. And, um, you know, another thing that I, I feel uncertain about declaring because I'm really conscious when, even when we're speaking in digital space, how it kind of like is a snapshot of a moment of time. Mm. And so much of this journey is fluid. And I, things that I believed a year ago, I'm embarrassed to say out loud today. So I just want oh, same my caveat. I got to tell you, don't write a book because <laughs> that's on the record then. And then like people hold you to that and you're like, going, oh man, did I really say the battle between good and evil? Oh my God. <laughs> uh, 
well, and then, but, and you know, some people that's their favorite part of the book and you, then you don't want to disappoint them by saying you don't, and you don't want to judge them. It's a really good way of like stopping from judging, like stopping. So I'm going to say this and, and I may have, I feel like I'm all, but I'm, I'm seasonally white passing. So I don't always, I don't read as white. I, my entire life, people have been like, where, what's your background? Where are you really from? Yeah. A lot of different cultures would try and claim me. They'd be like, oh, you're this. Oh, you must be this. Oh, you must yeah. be that. Yeah. Same. Um, yeah. So I'm, uh, I, I get, I get Palestinian. I've had like um, Portuguese, Maori, Persian community love to claim Mexican, me. Arab. I've been called all kinds of things. It's like, geez. Yeah. Hey, I went for an operation like recently and the, and the, and the doctor said, so what part of Sri Lanka are you from? Like very specific, really specific. Like that it's just, see what you, what you got is uh, ambiguous non-whiteness, yeah. which means that you're, you, anybody could project whatever they want onto you. But I tell you, it's, nobody's going to look at you and think that you're white, not for a second. <laughs> Oh, There's nothing yeah. seasonal about it. You're like just <laughs> just a brown lady. <laughs> yeah, man. But so there was enough ambiguity and where I live on the west coast of Canada, we have um it's you know there's been um there's a lot of mixed folk. So yeah. I I didn't I wasn't able to white pass in my career, but I was able to decenter my indigeneity because mm. it was a liability. And anytime I brought it up in work, I immediately regretted it. I immediately experienced, um, you know, harm. And yeah. so, so I just kind of put it in a silo, and I learned to compartmentalize um, ah, a lot of that's things. Awful. Mm. So as a result, I built this career. Um, building wealth for very eccentric, successful, older white men, mm. and um, and then I they're had the best a, kind. They're the best yeah. kind of white men to know. I find they're the best kind of building and the, hoarding wealth. Exactly. <laughs> and it's I don't know. And you know, and I was just obeying all my social conditioning that that's who deserves it. Yeah. So. Um, so I, I, I built a career in uh, retail apparel and, um, and fashion and, um, and then in one of those companies, they trained me to do leadership coaching, um, which felt really innate. And I, I realized um, uh, that my, you know, I really confused my passion. Like I thought my passion was like helping these leaders and actually, it's really about um, working with entrepreneurs who I believe in the mm -hmm. way our society is currently set up mm -hmm. are uniquely positioned to kind of activate solutions pretty quickly as opposed to compared to like waiting for a corporation, a big multinational or a government or some sort of institution to change direction you know, I, I, I do not like him, but, you know, I think of someone like Elon Musk, who's like, is nobody, is, are we just going to keep driving gasoline cars? Yep. Nope. Nobody else is going to deal with this. Okay. I'll do it. Right. So, um, so I, I, I left the corporate world and I started supporting entrepreneurs one-on-one. -on -one. A lot of that work started out looking like consulting and then it moved into more leadership. So, so helping to send them inward, mm. Um, to figure out how to be good leaders. And, you know, I picked up some Sweet. 
um, and how, how they could be how they could be like self-made men. Yeah, like become self-made <laughs> men like Elon. Started out with nothing, nothing at all, but a South African emerald mine or something, and inherited. How did he do it? You know, how did he do it? How did he do it? Like starting out with just how did he like take a billion dollars and turn it into two billion dollars? It's just genius. Anyway. <laughs> yeah yeah so that's I, I definitely need that kind of financial advice so I'm glad I know you now so I so that journey um kind of came to an end uh three years ago when someone working at a university who I knew through friends was like there's this entrepreneurship program for indigenous entrepreneurs up north and I think uh. you should consider doing some consulting and I I really had this like I feel foolish now, but it just never occurred to me that there was a space, an intersection of entrepreneurship and indigenous identity, because I'd never seen it. Yeah. And um, and then at that point, I completely shifted my entire focus of my whole career. So mm. I went from working zero percent in support of our communities and doing, you know, my grassroots and my community work in a completely separate silo from my career to now my entire career is uplifting indigenous people and our economic um yeah yeah reconciliation it's not the best word but essentially supporting indigenous people to have thriving access to economies that supports our well-being well arguably you know you've had like a thriving economy that's a few millennia old at least yeah after a good while and look i guess for a lot of people it's you know they think they're being authentic around the stereotype you know so i imagine that i mean i imagine that a lot of people maybe even in your own family are kind of have got in their mind that sort of uh that barter idea of indigenous economy and they're probably like got this oh good trade you know I give yeah. you corn, you give me feathers, you know, and like, or something like that. And that's there, that's good trade. And, and that's it. Like, it's just this yeah. barter exchange thing. It's, you know, yeah. and, and I mean, anybody who, I mean, if anyone looks at anything with, with a bit of deeper story, they see that there's a lot more to it than that. And it was actually more like a system of, uh, you know, debits and credits than anything else. And yeah. like almost a, a portable credit system where, you know, story and relationship are the, are the kind of fungible tokens of value that can be taken beyond a sphere of trust. And, and you're like, oh, my God, there was an actual, there's an economic system here. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've been so lucky to learn a, a little bit, and I'm by no means an expert, about potlatch culture which was banned by the Canadian government, completely outlawed and went underground and is just um, still, you know, in its reemergence. And, and that system of community care where wealth was measured by how much you could give away and mm. how much you could give away everything you had because there was a system in place that the next day after you gave away every single thing you had, you were taken care of by your community. Yeah it wasn't like, and then you had to start over. Mm. And we just don't in dominant culture have a point of reference for that level of community care because we're so focused on the self and the, the individual. Yeah. Oh, so it's- That's so true. It's, 
Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and so this journey with, with Raven Capital, I met, so, so I, I'm um, one of, um, there are now seven team members and the three founding partners kind of got together um, two, two indigenous guys and one fellow who is um, non-indigenous, non our, our ally and, and founding partner and, and chief investment officer who'd been doing work in sub-Saharan Africa in impact and impact investing and social capital um, and was actually at some big meeting in Italy like in 2008 where they coined the term impact investing wasn't mm. even a thing before then well wow. and he he tells the story of being home for the holidays one year and opening up a newspaper and i think that there's a similarity with i think australia i don't know a ton about it but i think australia and canada both have had a, a official framework mm. and process of truth and reconciliation is that right australia Oh, yeah. look, that, that's tricky. Um, like, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's apparently, I think, I think we borrowed our, we borrowed our reconciliation model from Canada. Uh, oh, hasn't worked out for us yet. And currently, I mean, and I've been asked to help out with this, but there's no way I'm going to do it. I, I don't think, I, I can't see how I can do it. Now they want to borrow the one from, from um, South Africa, the truth and reconciliation model. And I'm like typing an angry email back to this. You know, like these these are white South Africans who are being employed here, you know, because they're like uh, refugees from South Africa who've been who've allowed to jump to the front of the line of immigration here, and so you know they didn't have to go to the detention center or anything. That they just they're refugees from like fleeing from black people. So it's like oh my god, yeah, and they, and they, they and capital flight, making sure they get all their millions and billions of stolen wealth and bring it here. And so, and now it's, it's those people who are starting to head up our reconciliation movement. And I think I'm being a little bit xenophobic about this because I think I'm catastrophizing it and making it seem bigger than it is. Just, I mean, I've conflated this out of just a, a few emails. <laughs> and, and like a, a, a um, right? Pattern yeah. recognition. But then also, yeah, exactly. So it's like, two things okay i'm really acting like a dumb settler now because like i get kicked out of my house um you know uh by a south african who's buying <laughs> who's buying the house from my landlord so i've got to find a new place to live and then i get like one email from someone who's trying to do truth and reconciliation in australia and i'm like aha it's a conspiracy <laughs> from this dutchman oh i thought we speared them 500 years ago and now they're back from South Africa with their apartheid trying to, anyway, this is when things go wrong in your head, isn't it? <laughs> it truly is. It really, so, really is. So we had, we had this official process. It did, you know, I don't know. I have many opinions about it. Nobody yeah. is under the illusion that it worked, but it started mm. a conversation, mm. a lot of which is performative and yeah. and performance can be even more harmful than silence but anyways what it did do for us is Stephen opened this newspaper and read about residential schools 
Right. And it was never something that was taught in the public school system. And so it was kind of the first time he was really grasping what had happened in his own country. And he'd kind of been doing this savior, you know, well-intentioned thing anyways, came home. He had, he had the, the knowledge and partnered with um, two incredible leaders, um, one, one carrier man and one Métis man, Jeff and Paul. And so they started Raven Capital and they thought maybe they could raise like a million dollars as like an experiment to, to kind of like prove this idea that investing in indigenous led ventures, entrepreneurs could be a good idea. And, um, you know, Paul talks about developing an economy in the image of our people. Yeah. And, and so they've been, they've been at it for a couple of years. And when I met them, I, I felt my, uh, my like ancestral wisdom, like reach through my body hmm. and I don't communicate like this, but I like met them at a conference and I did this thing, like the look and I'm looking uh, into uh, time. Yes. And I was like, you need to hire me. I've been working on my own self-employed for like eight years. And I was like, you need to hire me. And you're not going to, you're going to mess around. You're going to bring in some white consultants and it's going to blow up in your face and then you'll come and find me. And that's exactly what happened. Ah, uh, uh, I tell you, that's the power move right there. Well, that's beautiful. It, it's, it's really weird. You yeah. managed to, to combine a kind of, you know, a decolonial, uh, you know, predictive model, you know, with a, like a really ballsy boardroom move there and, <laughs> and knocked it out of the park. That's deadly. You are going to hire me but not, yes. not, not yet. Probably first, not right first now. you're probably going to get white consultants and they'll wreck everything and then you'll be back. Um, yeah, and it's so kind, of, kind of like Thanksgiving, really, story. <laughs> there. You got that turkey feather, so I'm... I'm <laughs> hey, look, is it, is it a coincidence that there's seven people on your team or are you, do you deliberately have like one person for each of the generations that you're looking out for? No, it's a coincidence and we have plans to grow, but we're just at a convenient wow. spot at the moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, why, so, lim why limit yourself to seven generations ahead? Just, just because that's what the ancestors did. You, yeah. you, you yeah. can scale, scale that a little bit. <laughs> just try to keep the seven, but add some zeros on the end. Like, yeah. That's a good, good point. Just need 77 next. Um, yeah. So, so we, um, that they hired me and and one of the things we realized is because this is such so so here's the thing to know there as far as we know and we've done pretty good amount of research we're a few years into this so feel confident to say mm. this we're the only indigenous owned and led venture fund in doing impact investing in the world well there are hundreds if not thousands of venture funds in the world, many, many doing impact investing. And so what we recognized is that like, and when you, when you measure, like you'll see stats out there that say like how much capital of all the invested capital goes to women led companies. And it's like mm -hmm. less than 2%, might mm -hmm. even be less than a, a percent. They don't even measure it for indigenous entrepreneurs. That's how few there are. Mm -hmm. And so what we recognized is we couldn't just get a pot of money and be like, who needs money? 
we had to also bring in training and resourcing and capacity building well, so that there just, were even companies It's not just money. Us. It's not just money, it's capital. Yeah. It's a whole nother thing, you know. Yeah, anybody can have money, but not yeah. anyone can have capital. Yeah, it's, we, a, it's we a magic just... trick you have to perform and Raven Capital's doing it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if we were just handing out money, then we would have made a bank, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, then other people are handing out money to you. I think that's the goal of the bank. I mean, we're still using other people's money, but what we just, what we discovered is we needed to, we needed to offer other values. So we yeah. developed the Fireweed Fellowship which is a 10 month long cohort based reciprocal learning collective. That's what I wanted also, to ask you about. That story also for that. An accelerator. That's a very Silicon Valley term. Yeah. An accelerator. Yeah. Yeah, that is, a, but you know, you know what it means. Um, so so fireweed though, fireweed, yeah. what's that story? So fireweed is a plant that has really um, spoken to all of the individuals on our team at different points. When we got together to figure out what to call this thing, mm -hmm. we all had a fireweed story. And I am a, I am an embarrassingly amateur, I wouldn't even say herbalist, I'm interested in plant medicine. And so I got one of my many books out and I opened it up and we discovered that fireweed is one of the only plants in that is native to this part of Turtle Island known as Canada that grows from the furthest point of the west coast of Vancouver Island mm. all the way to the easternmost um, tip of um, Newfoundland and from the Arctic Circle mm. down to the medicine line. So it grows everywhere wow. and it also is a plant that is the first, the, it gets its name because it's the first plant to regrow after forest fires. See, if you're gonna be using words like accelerator and stuff like that, then you probably want that medicine. Yeah. 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 There's a few other beautiful things about fireweed. Every part of the plant is medicine, the roots, the Damn. stem, the leaves, the flowers, the seeds mm. and every nation had a different relationship with fireweed. So in Squamish and Seashelt Coast Salish weaving, the, the stem of the fireweed is the strong backbone of their woven fabrics and tapestries. Mm. And in the North, they use the fluffy seeds to stuff mattresses and pillows and mm. the leaves and the flowers can be used as tea and the everything has a, a medicine and every nation has a different relationship to it but it was this common thread that we sort of tripped over mm. and well, it's, it's, it's also good. really beautiful yeah 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 and it uh i don't know see i sorry um i'm just thinking through um uh, when I get a new term like accelerator, like I'm trying to make sense of that, I, I know it's not just about going faster there yeah. at all, but it's kind of about uh, being able to scale it, being able to, uh, yeah, uh, but uh, extend influence, uh, expand influence. It's all these things, I imagine. 
yeah, yeah. but I was thinking about it in terms of the fireweed and, and the way that that sort of uh, spreads that covers you know, we have that, uh, so I, I think of that word um, in Wick languages is Aten. Aten is spreading, and um, mm. but it's it means so much more than that. It's not just spreading, it's uh, it's how gossip spreads. Um, it's how bushfire spreads, a wildfire, but not wild. No such thing as wildfire, like an actual <laughs> a bushfire burning off, you know, land. And then... Um, but ever so much more than that. So how a disease or, you know, how a disease or a virus will spread, that's art and, uh, but also knowledge. So it's um, it's also used in the, the different kinds of pedagogy, uh, ways of teaching things. And you combine that word art and with, like, with a body part and you have a pedagogy, a pedagogy of like demonstration or, you know, uh, passing on knowledge or giving knowledge through story or, you know, um, showing someone how to do something, having them join in over time, helping hand, you know. Um, lots of, yeah, lots of things like that. So it's that art, and I think, that, that, that mm, helping me come to that and this idea of the fireweed business. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then the rest of it, I mean, there's, oh, there's so much. Yeah. Uh, so much going on. Like when I look at, at your website, I'm like, oh, my goodness. If they are actually doing what they're saying they're doing there, that, that's um, that's very exciting. I mean, we're trying, right? And and so it seems what like happened, you're actually doing it. Yeah. So what what we ended up doing is we the guys went out and and they actually raised twenty five million dollars. Right. And of so that money is investors' money that came from um, some you know private wealth holders. Um, it came from some nonprofit, like charitable um, philanthropic organizations. We actually had um, th three or four universities invest large sums of money, like a million dollars. That was their first investment after they finally declared they would no longer invest in fossil fuels. They would no longer invest their endowment into fossil fuels. And that sort of, um, and, and then we had some other other sources. So that all that money goes into, that $25 million goes into a pot. And then we have it for, um, a, there's a life to this fund. So this is the first fund, it, it lasts about 10 years and then we have to give it all back. Right. So in the time that we have that money, we can use it as fertilizer and fuel for the indigenous-led ventures that we invest in. Mm. And so we've made um, almost eight investments now, we'll probably yeah. do four or five more. Yeah. Um, and we have a, yeah, what you saw on our website, particularly the seven grandfather teachings um, and our approach, everything we do has, we have to see a straight line to the increased well-being for our people yeah and we have um you know we have a bunch of, of filters we have an impact um sort of assessment that we go through to make sure that not only are we in investing in indigenous entrepreneurs and ventures but that they are making a positive impact mm. in indigenous community mm. and then I, um, we help them I, I have a i have I, i'm running out of faith in um you know, programs 
whether they're done by other people or whether they're homegrown grassroots, you know, like we're, we're all, we're all directed as indigenous people to like, oh, you're going to help your people. And it's like, no, I want to be a vet, oh, like a, a, nat a native animal vet. Yeah. You're going to help kangaroos. You're going to help the kangaroos. You know what I mean? They're all They're directed. Oh, oh, so what are you going to do? Help your people. Like, you know, I'm gonna, I want to be in finance. I want to make some money. Are you going to make some money for your people? You're going to make some money for your community. You're going to make some, you're going to do these projects, you know, locally. And, and I don't know, like, I always feel like uh, it's a bit like trying to dry your feet. You know, like dry yourself uh, after a shower, you know, you're wet and you're drying your feet, but you should probably start with your head. Yeah. But but I, I feel like when we're directing just these things into our communities ourselves, and it's just these, oh, got to help the local community. We've got to start these programs in the community. We've got to train people up for these jobs that don't exist. It's kind of like drying yourself from the feet up while the shower is still running. You know, that's that's what I feel like. And so I really feel like um, like I'm looking for people where it's not about the what on the ground, it's about the how, that there are processes and there is knowledge that is applicable, that is generalizable um, out to the world that might help turn off that faucet a bit, you know, that actually will be able to like, not just, so it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit like ask not what you're, <laughs> you know country can do for your tribe but what your tribe can do for your country which annoys me just to think about it but but it's it's a bit like that it's a bit like well we, we're gonna have to um uh like stop like we, we can't stop these imperialists they're too powerful but we're actually gonna need to offer them an alternative they don't like doing what they're doing anymore but they don't know anything else to do we're going to have to put things in place because no one else is going to show them. These are these are babies. These are toddlers, at best adolescents, you know. And they need some more mature cultures to offer a few things to help yeah. along the way. Look, so so what jumps out at me from your work here? Like I'm looking at indigenous financial instruments. Mm -hmm. I want to know more about those and then what they have to teach people. And mm -hmm. um, anyway, also interested in this indigenous solutions labs. Mm -hmm. And I guess the word there I'm looking for is solutions because, you know, these are the things. Um, yeah. Everybody's trying to figure out, you know, new economic systems and, and everyone's, all your game theorists are looking for the holy grail of how you, you know, resolve the tragedy of the commons and the multipolar traps and everything else. What, what are you starting to find? I, mean, I know you probably can't share everything, but, but what well, is there like, in your solutions and in your financial instruments? What I can say is that the reason that all of us are working in entrepreneurship is because it's kind of like working in a laboratory where we can experiment because there's no map for what we're doing. There's no map. There's no path. You know, I don't, I don't say we're the first to blow our own horn. There is a huge amount of pr pressure that if we screw this up, we set people, you know, our people back another decade there's a lot of eyes on us to do it the right way. And there's there's literally no way of knowing. So we're just trying to find our balance. And I think most days we do a pretty good job of being guided by our ancestors and our elders and our cultural wisdom and you know a bit of common sense and, and practical experience in, in this space. And 
you know, creating an environment and a, and a knowing within our team that we're not going to get it right all the time. And we don't put the pressure that colonial perfectionism on ourselves to say that we have to have all the answers. So we're surrounded by incredibly smart and thoughtful folks and we root everything that we do in ceremony. And so as long as we start everything we do in ceremony, we don't have to control everything mm. to the same degree, right? Yeah. That sounds true. That's it. That feels true. Yeah. Well, so what do you have in terms of, um, I, can't, I don't know if there's anything specifically you can share because, you know, you're still, uh, you know, like, uh, you, know, you probably don't want to pearls before swine all your your pearls out there in the world before you get a chance to <laughs> make a bit of bank but you know is there anything you can share with us around um what kind of like you know, innovations are coming out of uh you know around this idea of an indigenous financial instrument um you know so so stuff that's informed uh through indigenous knowledge systems and and the kind of systems thinking that we have um yeah, what, what kind of game changer kind of things are starting to emerge? That's a good question. I just I think, I don't know if you have any that you're able to share, but I mean, you could well, be vague, I, vague about it if you want. I think one of the things, and this is happening within Fireweed that I'm seeing already. So we're halfway through the program. We have 24 um, participants and um, they are self-organizing into um, what, what could end up being quite a closed loop and circular economy. Mm. So in our product-based companies are connecting with our land-based companies around sourcing and developing ingredients. Nice. Um, you know, the, the finance, the folks with financial knowledge are helping the land-based businesses to get more funding so they can, they can own land and have sovereignty in those spaces. Mm. And then we've got, you know, folks who are tackling sort of the um, post-consumer issues with products. So, or the, even the manufacturing of those products. So there's, there's a bit of that. I always think it always comes back to biomimicry, which is, mm. No, well, I, maybe you can explain uh, uh, closed loop and open loop systems um, uh, yeah. to people who might be listening and not understand those, but from a biomimicry or ecosystemic yeah. perspective, so and then you can show how that knowledge is transferring across that way. Just always comes for me, like I grew up by the ocean, I grew up in the rainforest by the ocean, and I always just think about how there is, um, there, there's nothing needed from the outside, we have everything that we need, mm. and everyone has a role in that ecosystem. We have the, you know, we have the mycelium distributing the energy to the trees, the, the fungus breaking down and the insects working together to break down the dead material and turn it back into energy for new growth. We have, you know, trees holding water to keep the temperature at a certain level and the moisture at a certain level. We have the animals moving and distributing the seeds around. Um, so that's what I, I always just, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, an academic by any stretch. I am a high school and then university dropout, um, proudly. Um, but I always think of that closed loop as a circle. It's just a circle. Like my six-year-old could tell you about it from watching the Lion King. Like yeah. so everybody is taken care of. Everyone has a role. 
to and everyone has something to contribute and we and so have what happens what happens if you if you break that and you create an open loop where well, you uh, basically capitalism. so you're extracting things that yeah. are going into static heaps and are long, yeah. no longer moving through a system and powering the entire system uh, you have entropy also which is uh you know gathering itself together in static heaps uh which is and so you get wealth disparity you get yeah yeah you get the wealth inequity you mm. get you get um, the stagnation we, and toxification of the entire system yeah um, you get climate collapse you get you know social unrest and and all of that um that we're facing and and even you know a pandemic what is interesting though is that um also, you know, no system is uh, self-contained yeah. either, that each system also needs to exchange uh, energy and information with other systems. Mm -hmm. So on your coastal community there, you know, you've got, uh, uh, okay, are you picturing in your mind like the, where the river comes out near yeah. there? Yeah. So, you Bring know, you've probably got, yeah, and you've probably got, so your salmon will be coming up there. And, and they don't do that. Turn. They don't do that in Australia. That's a mother's side totem for me, salmon. But we don't have that uh, swim up the river and spawn kind of thing. Our eels perform that function in Australia. They swim all the way out to Vanuatu and then they come back, and they and they come up and they go right across the land because that's the important thing. It's it's exchanging energy across from that saltwater system to the freshwater, and over land and on high ground and low ground, and in the forests. So there's always, and there always has to be a struggle, you know, so our eels are climbing trees and banks and mountains and going across the ground and like dying in their thousands to get back to those spawning grounds, you know, in the same way that the salmon are like getting through, but there's things that are, so that's not like, oh, we got to save these eels. It's no, no, no. They're bringing what's needed from that other system. So, you know, um, in, in the forest. Yeah, the bears are, are taking, taking the, the salmon and in a forest where there's no other way that forest is going to get phosphorus, exactly. getting, it, getting it from the sea, you know, and so our systems are supposed to interact. So I guess that's uh, the capital that you're hanging on to for 10 years um, because you don't get an emerald mine from South Africa like uh, all the other billionaires. So yeah. you get to hold on to that little bit of few million there for a few years and grow that. And I guess that's like something the salmon brought in. Well, what we do is we give it all away and then it comes back at the end of the 10 years with hopefully a bit of extra so that we can prove our purpose and, you know, existence in this that's, capital. That's a hell of a leap of faith. And that's a, yeah. that's a hell of a, um, yeah. I mean, you, you would have to know. It's great that people are investing in that. And I came to see how, uh, you know, yeah, I could have the, how that hypothesis works out. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel I feel pretty good about it. the 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 doubt and the conflict comes in for me personally mm. some days, you know. And I've been on on a intentional decolonial journey for about eight years, like having that language and yeah. and having dialogue about it. I recognize now that I've been on that journey since I was little, because I've always been someone who questions, why do we do, why is this the best way to do it? Why are we doing this? Yeah. Who says, whose idea? And those I, I believe are decolonial questions, yeah. but this intentional journey. And, you know, there is, I think in every indigenous person or every person who's experienced 
you know, belonging to a group that has been marginalized or oppressed by dominant culture, we have these moments mm -hmm. where we're like, why am I even engaging in this system that wants to kill me? Yeah. Like capitalism wants me dead. Yeah. I'm an indigenous woman. That is the that is the the end result desired end result. So, mm. you know, and and I really believe as indigenous people, and I think you really talked about it. I think we have an innate ability, and definitely those of us who are engaged in a conversation about the impacts of colonialism, to hold two truths at once. Mm. Right? Like. Yeah, that's it. So it's capitalism I, wants to kill me, mm. and. I want to make a difference in this way with my skill set, or this yeah. is what's important to me today. What you're doing is is trust. It's a trust, but you're trusting. It's a it's a it's a process. It's an action. You're trusting, and that's different from the high risk behaviors that you see in Wall Street. You know, you're not rolling the dice. You're not rolling the dice with this fund. You know, it's it's you're you're trusting that the way you're using it is the right way because that is the pattern ancestrally that you know works over seven generations and more yeah you know and that's a trust and that's different from risk that's mm -hmm. not somebody who makes a pyramid scheme no you know, no and, and then like uh jumps out at the last minute and, and throws his mate under the bus and then goes and like uh you know gets victoria's secret as a client and then just keeps going rolling the dice um and just yeah. burning things and running um, no this is in impact investing is not there's easier ways to get rich and hoard wealth yeah definitely yeah. hopefully when you get rich you'll uh you know if you do buy an island you'll figure out something awesome to do with it oh, it's help, that's, helpful for people that's maybe other, other tension to maybe you can do like a, a, a like a reverse trafficking ring and you can go and find all the missing women uh because it's a bit of a phenomenon at the moment for for your people there um yeah. it's that nobody seems to know about i think it's lovely that people are suddenly aware of residential schools now that that's old news yeah you know um i, I wonder how many decades before they start to recognize like hashtag this genocide of female indigenous people on your island it's yeah. um it's horrific it is so i guess i guess you you need to be there and doing the things you're doing and building yeah, absolutely and building the power base that you're building to be able to have because really in the end it's only capital uh that can protect people it's only capital that is protected by the state because you have to have property or be property in order to be protected and if you're neither of those things uh you're fair game you're fair game for some pretty damn horrendous marginal people yeah it's it's something that we think about every single day and with fireweed we decided for our first cohort to center in uh women trans two-spirit queer and non-binary folks so basically the first cohort is for anyone who doesn't identify as a cisgendered man and that what you described the the um crisis that we're in missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirit folks 
um, is something that has impacted every single person on our team and all of the participants. And so when we thought about designing, you know, this circle of learning and support, we thought about, you know, yes, we're here to help people with their businesses, but it is so colonial to think of people as having a professional life and a personal life. Mm. And so what does it mean to support leaders who are affected by that crisis every day? And so a couple of the things that we're trying out in this first cohort are trauma-informed approach to all of our facilitation. Um, we've developed, co-developed a, a body of work um, with someone who does a work, a body of work called the trauma of money. And so and everything we do that has to do with finance in this, in the Fireweed Fellowship is centered in this body of work, which means we name and tame the trauma we all experience around money. And, and you know, in on Turtle Island, that means legislated poverty, dispossession mm. of land. Mm. Um, you know, it was illegal to hire a lawyer. It was illegal to sell anything you grew on your land. Like all of these, all of this impact and inaccess to intergenerational wealth. Yeah. And we resource everyone in like, okay, when you open a spreadsheet with your bookkeeper and you leave your body, how do you get back into it? How do mm. we... How do we hold ourselves um, and how do we heal some of that trauma? All right, so to make it very clear, this is not some woke thing where you're trying to make uh, finance into a safe space, but you're actually preparing, you're preparing people to engage with unsafe spaces and yes. to thrive, thrive within them. Is that right? We can't we can't eject ourselves from the financial system. Yeah. You know, there's very, very, very few people that have, and I would call it a privilege to completely go like you have to have the emerald mine to live fully off-grid and be fully self-sustained. And like, you know, there's there's very, very few people that can completely check out of dominant culture and that system uh, of capitalism. So yeah, we need to be resourced so that we can go into a bank and have a conversation and and not leave being exploited oh wow that just, it, just, it just occurred to me that that was the like the trifecta in the in the in my my south african conspiracy theory now didn't realize that was another part it's got three parts now it's got that it's got the emerald mine it's got my landlord and it's got truth <laughs> and reconciliation um actors here <laughs> yeah. oh goodness me and uh capital flight which is always a lot of fun. Um, I wonder, I, I don't know, can, can you foresee a problem in the future where, like, because capital flight's a problem in China, they have to uh, put controls in place for that. Obviously, it's, it's devastated South Africa, um, which is good because, I mean, it's probably half of what got us through the GFC in Australia is all the capital flight from South Africa. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> but look, do you think it's ever going to be a problem? Um, on your island in indigenous communities, do you think uh, the capital flight will ever be a thing? Like once you actually have capital, uh, do you think that it'll be a problem people will start to just leave with it by themselves on island? Uh, I, it's not something that I had considered, but I will tell you that every single entrepreneur, indigenous entrepreneur that I've talked to, and I talked to a lot of them, mm. I talked to them about what would you do if you had access to money? 
well, how do you, what's your vision? And all, all of them without exception, fundamentally, there's two things that come up is giving back to community. And most of them it's through giving land back or yeah. getting land back in their territory or, uh, you know, all the multitude of things that land back means when it brings, really comes yeah. down. That brings me to my final question for you, land back. Um, so two thirds of the capital in the world is, is land. A lot of people don't realize that. They think that's the old world. And, you know, the idea of the, the financialization of land, you know, that, that land could be enclosed and foreclosed on, you know, uh, and could secure a debt. That that began on Turtle Island and it began as a way of tricking uh, your people out of uh, treaty land and, you know, reservation <laughs> land and stuff like this, you know, with mortgages. It began there and then spread throughout the world. What would capital look like to you and what would finance look like to you if land could not be capital? If there was a rule that everyone agreed to that you're not allowed to have land as capital, you can have everything else but not that, what would happen? Put your like holistic uh, native goggles on and Mm. Tell me how that would have to be enacted in a way that wouldn't completely destroy everybody in, on the face of the earth. Well, let's just talk through this. So money, money would completely lose all of its value. So we'd have no, we'd have no currency the way that we do now. Mm. And so that we'd, we'd have to take care of the land. Yeah. Would the, would the digital currency uh, lose, its, lose its value? I don't know that I know enough about that to speak to it. Right. I'm not an economist. All right. Well, I'll outsource you know, <laughs> that opinion to my woman who, who's, who understands blockchains and things like that. She'd be like, okay. yeah, no, that um, that's not going to take. We'd have to take care of the land. We would have to take care of each other. What would become currency was maybe what you're talking about, story. Um, our skills, what we can build with our hands. Um, so it, it would be a complete, um, like it would, you're talking about the end of the financial system completely, just if land wasn't capital. Yeah, well, you know, when we do this I mean, work- Anything else could be capital. Is it possible to transition to a system I mean, of we capital where it, land is not? Capital. We have, we also, we have to keep in mind, we've, we had a system where bodies were capital. Uh, yeah. So labor was, the Dutch invented the stock market that, you know, you know what they were trading. They were mm. trading stolen humans from Africa. Yeah. So. So I guess if you want, if you want to have a financial system, you've got to choose. You're either selling your body or the body that you came from beneath your feet. Yeah. The, the, it's either you or the land. It must be capital. Or you, you can't see any way that finance could exist without being secured by one of those things. I mean, I haven't spent too much time thinking about this and I love mm. this topic, but all I can think of is what you, you said about trust. It's like, the reason we have currency is because we don't trust each other. We need proof 
I did this for you and you're going to do this for me. I gave this to you and you're going to give this to me isn't enough for humans. And, you know, we had currency, you know, my, in my culture, we had, you know, we had currency, we used shells and made wampum belts and, um, you know, on the West coast, there was an incredible system with trade beads and, um, you know, artifacts, but, I think a one currency system where we have money or we have bodies mm. and money attached. I, I, I can't. Can you? I can't. Look, we're going to have to 2.0 this conversation to uh, <laughs> figure out how to make that work. I need to. I need it to is very difficult for me to engage, engage with, the, um, with the discipline that demands that the land like the mother, the habitat, the everything that we are must be able to be secured against debt, like leveraged against debt in order for the, you know, this discipline to even be. Um, so anyway, I guess I'll leave you with those unsettling thoughts for uh, let you marinate a couple of weeks and then we'll, then we'll get back to it, eh? I would like that. I would like to talk about the financial disorders and that humans have taken on as a result of our trauma of money, which results in the hoarding that we experience. And I think there's something there about like, yeah. if we healed that, we wouldn't need debt. Well, let's, uh, let's sort out these hoarders, eh? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs>